This morning, uh, we're going to finish up chapter 19, and we'll be starting in verse 30. I'll give you a chance to, to turn there. Since we're all warmed up with uh, sharing and, and talking in public, uh, after I read this, I'm just going to ask for a barrage of responses. I'm just going to ask, when you, when you read through this passage, where does your mind go? What, is, what does the Lord do as you read this? <laughs> because, uh, well, we'll get into why I'm going to do that in a minute. Let's, let's go ahead and read this passage. Genesis chapter 19, and I'm going to start in verse 30. Uh, let me give a, just a quick, if you weren't here last week, here's where we are. Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed. Lot and his family escaped. God drugged them out of the city. Lot's wife in the valley, Jordan Valley, not figuring out, do I go, do I stay, do I go, do I stay? That sounds like a poem. Do I go, do I... Anyway, and in the end, her heart can't leave Sodom, turns back, pillar of salt. But Lot and his daughters make it to Zoar, and God sends burning sulfur on the entire Jordan Valley, and judgment, and just decimates the whole area. And that's where we pick up with Lot and his daughters in Zoar. So let's read there in verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Now, as we go through that, what comes to mind? What's your response to that? And I'm just going to throw that out. So really, just, just blurt out a response. Where does your mind go after reading that? It's not right. Ew. What else? As I was talking to my boy this morning, um, he said, well, you must, you're preaching on something. There's been a lot of tension in my family over this passage this week because I've just been upside down. You know, there's these great passages like John 3.16, you hope to draw the straws when it's time for you to preach. And, and things like, like God calling Abraham and, and, and you just have so much to preach about. But then you get the short straw every now and then. 
and you get the end of Genesis 19. And I've just been pulling my hair out. And so, this, so obviously something had been going wrong or different. And so my boy says, well, so what are you preaching on this week? Because obviously it's, it's different. And I said, well, it's, it's the end of Genesis 19. Go ahead and read it. So he pops over his computer and, and he reads it. And the first thing out of his mouth is, wow, that's weird. <laughs> and, and I had just written down here, ask for responses. I, I added a little note, ask for responses from the body. And so I said, so I said Alex, what, is your, what do you respond to in that? When you read that, what, what, what comes up? And he says, well, God's got a plan for everything. And the response kind of shocked me because after going in and out and in and out and, and reading a book on worldliness that I highly recommend, I came to this point where you know what, God really has a plan for everything. And that was the first thing out of his mouth. And I said, how, how did you come to that so quick? He said, oh, it's just a Sunday school answer. And I thought, you know, if bakers, <clears throat> if that's what our kids are learning in Sunday school, nice job. <laughs> nice job, because, because this passage... Yeah, God does have a plan for everything. And if that's the first thing that clicks into your mind, I mean, ooh is probably the first thing. Bewilderment, what? That, that's going to come up. That's just our natural reaction. But then as we sit and ponder it for a minute, you have to come to that place where you say, God has a plan for everything. For everything. So I'm going to run a little risk of being kind of Sunday schoolish this morning. And we're going to do a bit of a history lesson. At the end of Genesis 19, Lot falls off the radar. And so we're going to go back and we're just going to kind of quickly walk through Lot. And then see what happens to his legacy going forward. And so we see back in Genesis 11 is where Lot kind of shows up. Where we talk about Genesis 11 is where the entire line of Terah, Abraham's father, starts. And we see that Abraham has three sons, at least, Haran, Nahor, and Abram. And Haran, that's Lot's father. And Lot's father dies. So Lot's just kind of in limbo here. And Terah takes Abram, Sarah, and Lot with him when he starts heading toward Canaan. And he ends in a town called Haran. Interesting, we're double loading these names. But he took Lot with him because he'd kind of become a surrogate father to him because his father had died. So Lot is now in this package. So they get to Haran. Terah dies. Lot now kind of gets absorbed in with Abram. And Abram starts taking places. And it's interesting that each time you, you see Lot, you see Lot as a tag-along. Because as God called Abraham to himself, or called Abraham to, to go to another country, he packs up his things, and in obedience he goes, and at the very end there's this little sentence that says, and Lot went with Abram. And then after Lot goes to Egypt, and we have that big thing in Genesis 12 about, oh, say you're my sister, and yada, 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 and and with the Pharaoh, and all these problems. And then it says, Abraham went to the Negev, and it says, Lot went with Abram. So Lot's just kind of this tag-along, and you start asking, well, why doesn't he go get a life of his own? 
And really, it's because Abram has become kind of this surrogate father to Lot and is bringing him up. And so you, you see there's kind of a, there's a family bonding that's going on there. So a little bit later, you see that, that Lot and Abram, they have so many possessions that the land, it, they have a hard time sustaining them. And, and so their herdsmen kind of start conflicting with one another. And Abram goes to Lot and says, look, the whole valley is in front of us. Choose which way you want to go. You pick and I'll go the other way. Hey, just, just pick which way you want to go. And Lot looks around and he says, wow, that's green, that's desert, I'll take green. And so he chooses and he goes, toward the, he goes to the east, he goes toward the Dead Sea and, and closer and closer to Sodom. And eventually we see Lot moving into Sodom when Catalaomer comes and attacks and takes over the city, takes Lot with him up to the hill country or takes him off and... And Abraham goes and rescues him. Again, why is that? We still have this bond. There's, there's a, a tight bond between these two. He comes back, and the next thing we see about Lot is not only is he living in Sodom, but as we saw last week, he's living in Sodom, owns a house, and he's doing business at the city gates. Now, after, after somebody came and conquered my city and took me away and all those things, I think I'd have moved to a different city. That's what I would have done, but... He decided to stay there in Sodom. So that's what he did. But then a couple angels show up at the gate of Sodom, and this is where we were last week, and tell Abram, we're going to destroy this place. Get your things and let's go. And all last week we see that Abraham, I called him a weasel, he, he was dragging his feet. He didn't really want to go. He, but he obeyed God at his word. He believed God was going to do what God said, and he went. And we saw in 2 Peter that God says that he was tormented in his righteous soul being there. That Lot was righteous, and God knew how to save the righteous while punishing the wicked. But now we have this really odd thing. The, the angels tell Lot, get to the mountains... Lot says, oh, no, 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 we can't go that far. Not only can we not go that far, but I don't want to live in the mountains. Can you let me live in this little city? This, this li- it, says, it says it's a little one. You know, there's, there can't be that much bad stuff going on there. It's a little one. It's right down at the very bottom of the Dead Sea, Zoar, right there. Let us just go there because we're not going to make it to the hill country. But no sooner does he get there, he looks around and he says, you know what, if God judged Sodom, he's about to judge this. And he was afraid to live there. And so he packed up his bags, he packed up his daughters, and did what the angels told him to begin with. He headed for the hills. Okay? So here we are. We're, we're in the hills, and we're about to enter into this passage that we have here. So we have this character sketch of this man named Lot. And now, there's nobody around. They're living in a nice, safe place, in the caves, up in the mountains. Now, when I teach Sunday school, there's one thing that I always tell the kids, and this isn't disrespectful, it's to keep me reminded. If we start getting in a history lesson, and I go more than just a couple of minutes, raise your hand and call me a jerk. And so they just wait, they watch their clocks every five minutes. And I say, if we don't stop and focus in on the attributes of God, what God is trying to tell us in this history, we need to stop things. And we need to, we need to refocus, because we don't just read this so that we can play Bible trivia. We read this because God wants to imprint his face in our minds. 
That's where we read this. And so as we're digging into this, we say, what is it that God is showing us about himself here? And so in this first part of Lot, what is it that God's showing us about himself? And we see a couple of things. One is that God calls people. I mean, simple as that. We have that in Genesis 12. God called Abraham out and Lot went with him. And, and God is intimately involved in the affairs of men. We see that. A couple other ones is we see all the way through Lot's life and through Abram's life that God doesn't impute righteousness on those that are morally shiny. Get that? I mean, this is, this is one of the big ones when we look at Lot's life and we look at Abram's life. It's not that we don't seek to be more like Christ. It's not that after God saves us, he does all of this rearrangement in our life to make, him, make us more like him. And yeah, it's painful and we desire to be like Christ. And we desire to be morally shiny because Jesus is perfectly morally shiny. And we do desire that. But God doesn't impute righteousness on those that have shined themselves up and said, look, God, I'm shiny. And you see that in Abram, and you see that in Lot, and you see that even though they make continuous mistakes all the way through their lives, it says they're righteous. It says they're righteous. So one of the things that we see about God is that that God is going to call who he desires to call, and he's going to save those he desires to save. We get to Sodom, we see that God will judge sin. God is no mamby-pamby God like you read in the shack. Hey, somebody that's afraid of sin and afraid that he's going to make people mad at him or her or whatever. It is. That's, that's not God. God will judge sin. God has provided a way to reconcile us and save us from that punishment. But in the end, God does, God did, and God will judge sin. He's perfectly holy perfectly righteous and cannot be in the same place as sin and then the last piece there God knows how to rescue the righteous while punishing the wicked and we saw that from the Peter passage so as we go through this be sure that we're looking because in the end as we as we hit this section we're going to go back to this what is it we see about God when he's imprinting his face in our minds what is it he's showing us about himself because the passage is simple right Genesis is a book of beginnings it is the table of nations it starts in Genesis 11 with Terah and goes all the way through the descendants of Terah all the way to verse I think it's 30 something where where the next person Jacob starts and so what we have are these these chunks of Genesis that are telling the Israelites about how the nations were started Okay? And so there's no question. It's as simple as can be. Why is it God goes and tells us about this thing that happened in the cave? Because two-thirds of Canaan is taken up by Moabites and Ammonites. When you look at the map, there's Moab down here in the south. And then there's Ammon up here in the north. And it takes up a huge portion of Canaan. And so as the Israelites come out of Egypt and they start marching on their way to Canaan, they're going to look around and there's all these people. And God says, no, you can't go in there. Why? Well, those are the descendants of Lot. Don't harass them. I'm not going to give you the land anyway. Leave them alone. And so when you go up a little bit further, those the Ammonites, leave them alone. Stop. Don't harass them. I'm not going to give you victory there. I'm not going to give you that land. You're going to divide up these other parts. You don't get those. And so as the Israelites go in there, it's perfectly obvious that in the beginning of nations, we need to know where they came from. And so Moses is telling them, Here's where they came from. 
But back to the history lesson. So the daughters flee with dad, and they go up to the mountains. They have relations. They bear children. It doesn't say that this came out of some kind of sensuality. Really, it says it came out of foolishness. They looked around. There's no men. And so we have to fix this problem. So they took it on their own hands, and they fixed the problem. We're going we're gonna to keep our line going, and we're going to do it our way. And this is where I got sidetracked in this message. Because as I read this, and I read the commentaries, every one of them has at least one sentence about, you raise your children in a worldly fashion, your children are going to react in a worldly fashion. Why is it it surprises us? Why is that? And so I kind of sidetracked there and thought, well, that's really, that must be what God's trying to tell us. Because the message is direct. Here's why he wrote it. But when we we think about scripture, we, we say it this way. The book is written not to us, but for us. So this was written directly to the Israelites and telling them where the nations came from. But in God's mercy, this book is written for us so that we can we can see God. We can encounter God in his word. And so we looked at that, what's that other piece? And so this piece about worldliness just kept coming up. If, if you raise children in Sodom and then you take them somewhere else, why is it you expect them to act any other way? And that really convicted me. So I hung on that for a long time and I went back and, and, and I had read this book a while back and and so I, I, I burned back through it because it's um, Mahaney from Sovereign Grace Ministries. Excellent little book. But it's really convicting about all the things. He hits every single thing that I do in life and calls it worldly. And every, everything that I let my kids do in life and calls it worldly. And, and it really makes you sit back and say, what kind of environments are you creating in your home? And then expecting your kids to respond in a godly way. But that's not what the message is about. Because in the end, this message is that God has a plan for everything. And, and even when that happens, what can God do with it? Keep on with the history lesson. We're almost through. So we have these two groups. We have the Moabites and we have the Ammonites. The rest of Scripture pretty well, not all the time, but often runs these two groups together. So we start in Deuteronomy 2, where again, the, the people are coming out of Egypt, and they're moving into Canaan, and God over and over again says, don't even try it. These are Lot's descendants. Don't harass them. I'm not going to give you that land. That's Deuteronomy 2. And then we go, from there we go into Judges, and right away we see that the Ammonites are used by God to bring judgment on the Israelites because the Israelites started worshiping other gods and God said, hmm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise these people up and I'm going to bring them in. And for 10 years, they subjected the Israelites to slavery and and whatnot. So God is using the Ammonites for that. But then Jephthah shows up and pushes them all back out again, conquers the Ammonites. And then we see in Chronicles, David defeats the Ammonites and the Moabites and forces them to pay tribute. Then Solomon builds the high places for their gods. And these people are named actually with the detestable things on earth. It says the detestable God of the Moabites, the detestable God of the Ammonites. And it runs them together and God hates 
these gods and hates that idolatry and leaves them intact. But then comes our friend Jehoshaphat. And this is such a fantastic passage somewhere in 2 Chronicles uh, in chapter 20. Jehoshaphat goes to the Lord and he says, okay, God, listen. When, when we... He didn't say it that way, by the way. Okay. When we came up from, from Egypt, you told us don't harass these people. Don't displace them. You weren't going to give us the land. And we obeyed. We did exactly what you said and we went around them. We didn't bother them. We didn't displace them. We didn't kill them. We didn't anything. And here is how we're repaid. They're joining forces and they are now coming on the holy city. They are coming to conquer us. Help us. And this is just about the end of the Ammonites. Because you know how the story goes. God actually went to battle for them. He said, just go out there. You're not going to have to meet them, but armor up, march out there. They armor up, they march out there. And the Ammonites and the, and the Moabites and all these start fighting against each other. And all they see are a bunch of dead bodies when they get there. And that just, that battle decimated this people group. And then lastly, we see it again after the exile we see the Ammonites still harassing the Israelites after they've rebuilt the wall. Oh, we're not happy about that. And they're pointing their fingers, but they don't have any power after that. But they're still there just... And so I ask myself as I'm pulling my hair out, this people is irredeemable. This people has... They have no purpose. What do you mean? What do you mean God has a plan for everybody? This, this people should have never been allowed to exist. Never. I mean, God had the perfect chance. As, as they're running across the Jordan Valley, the mom stops and looks back. He should have had the daughter stop and look back too. And this whole thing would have just gone away. Israel could have had the whole land. Everything would have been okay. These people wouldn't have been harassing the Israelites the whole time. There wouldn't have been this people group that's just nonstop idol worshiping. Moloch. And in fact, one of the kings, when, I'm getting excited. One of the kings, when, when the Israelites were coming to, to, to come to the city and, and conquer them, he takes his son, puts him up on the, on the wall, and sacrifices him right there to just appease his God to keep the Israelites away. The Israelites, it worked because the Israelites went, whoa. And they retreated. This is, a, this is detestable. This people is, they're, they're sick. Why would God allow these people when he was, he, he had the perfect opportunity. As they're running across the Jordan Valley trying to get to Zoar, all they had to do is trip once. And burning sulfur would have overcome them and it would have been done. Perfect timing. And we wouldn't have had all this problem. Or we could even back it up a little bit further. Why is it, why did Lot, why did Terah not say, Lot, you stay with Nahor. I'm taking Abram with me. Why did Lot even have to go with him? If Lot wouldn't have come with him, again, this would have never happened. He could have had his kids, but something totally different would have happened way off where they lived before. Or, how about, why did Lot's dad need to die anyway? I mean, what is that? If, if Lot's dad wouldn't have died, Lot would have stayed with dad and dad would have moved somewhere to the east somewhere and, and none of this would have happened. 
You know, forgive this for sounding quaint, but God really could have stopped the whole thing in the Garden of Eden. I mean, they sinned, could have put an end to it right there, too. Right? They sinned, they deserve to die, end of human race, sick of it, you people are not going to... That's where it could have ended. But as you read through this, when it says, my ways are so much higher than your ways, my plans are so much... You can't even fathom what I'm doing. And when the Bible says that, you know what, all the angels in heaven rejoice when one, just one Ammonite, one Moabite, one Windsorite comes to Christ and repents. What's God's plan? Is this people really irredeemable? Well, the history has a little bit more in it, actually. In the time of the judges, there's this big famine and and this lady and her husband, they need to leave Israel, leave Canaan. They, they go into the land of the Moabites with their two sons. And their sons take wives and dad dies. And about 10 years later, the sons die and leave mom with these two daughters. The mom says to the daughter-in-laws, you know what? Go back to your gods. Go back to your people. I can't provide for you a husband anymore. You're still young. You're vibrant. Go away from me. And one of them goes back. But the other one says, oh, no, no, no. No, no, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going with you. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. And this lady's name was Ruth, the grandmother of David, great-grandmother of David. She's a Moabite. In the line of Christ. This dirty, nasty, flea-bitten family is in the line of Christ? Oh, it gets worse. It gets worse because we got this guy named Solomon who just loved foreign women. And one of his wives was an Ammonite. Let's get the whole package together. One of his wives were an Ammonite, and he even built high places for her so she could worship Moloch. Okay. And this wife, I'm not going to try and pronounce it, Nema, Nema, something like that, is the mother of Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the king who, who was the king after Solomon where the uh, Israel split, the kingdom was divided. And when you go into Matthew and you read the genealogy, guess who's right there? You have Ruth up above David, you have David, you have Solomon. Solomon, his wife, the Ammonite, the mother of Rehoboam, both of these people, groups, are in the line of Christ. And so as I study that, I sit back and I ask myself, what does it mean to be irredeemable? This people, what we said earlier, God imputes righteousness on those who believe him and his word, not on those that are morally shiny. And if we learn anything from this, you can sit back and say, who is it that's irredeemable? Who is it that can be, this, these people are unfathomably wicked, there's nothing all the way from their conception to the time they don't show up in scripture anymore where they've done anything right. Okay, we'll give Ruth a little credit there. Ruth is actually fantastic. 
but nothing else. It's all just, just bad stuff, bad stuff, bad stuff. But yet, God chooses them to be in the lineage of Christ. And we have to read this passage because as I was thinking through this, Psalm 115 says this, Our God is in heaven and he does what pleases him. In case that sounds out of context, it doesn't say God is in heaven and he does what Chris thinks is right. He's, God is in heaven and he asks Chris whether or not Lot's a weasel and whether or not he's can be saved. No, God is in heaven and he does what pleases him. And then that drove me to Romans 9. And Romans 9 actually ends with some pieces there about Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm just going to read this one section. Romans 9, starting in verse 22. Romans 9, 22, I'm going to read through 26. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Who's he talking about here? These are, the, these are your Ammonites. These are your Moabites, Jebusites, Thisites, Windsorites. Every one of us. Because there was a time when none of us could be called, son, we're not God's people. But now, we are. Now we are. What Christ has done for us takes us out of this place where we really are no different from them. Last week we said put Lot in one hand and put you in the other hand. Morally, where do you really fall? You really, in comparison to where God is, you're not a centimeter above or below Lot, really. It's not that different. Even on your best day, God doesn't save the morally shiny. Who's irredeemable? First Peter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. God has a plan for everyone. When one person repents, the angels in heaven rejoice. God leaves the 99 he goes after the you. He came after me. Because, you know, as I thought through this, I thought, how many of us sitting here at one time thought we were irredeemable? And some of you sitting here today may think even now that you're irredeemable, that, you know what, I'm in a place where God can't even see me. There's a darkness over me that God can't even see me here. And that's not true. If God can save these people, if God has a plan for these people, if God merges these people into his kingdom because 
There will be a day when every nation on earth will be present before the throne of God, singing praises to God. It'll, be, it'll sound like a mighty rushing water. When every tongue under heaven will be there. Including us. Nobody is outside the grace of God. And, and just a, a quick personal story to close this off. Uh, some of you know this. My dad, I, I got to talk to my dad over Christmas. My dad, uh, we prayed for him for a little while and then gave up because there's just no way. There's just no way. He's done. Um, he has got one foot in hell already. Maybe that's not the right way to say that. He is, he's just, he's here, he, I'm done. And I stopped praying for him. There's just out of sight, out of mind. And, and he calls one day and says, you got to come visit. We went and visited him. And sure enough, it's 62 years old. This man came to Christ. At 62 years old, he gave everything up. And so, as, he, as the Lord starts working in his life, at 67, he went, he's in seminary. My dad, he, he just finished with all A's and one B in his first semester of seminary. I talked to the man on the phone over Christmas. And from the beginning of the conversation to the end of the conversation, he was exhorting me to be a man of God. I don't even know this man. I have, I mean, I hear his voice. I hear what he's saying. The voice sounds familiar. But there is nothing in the being of this man that I know. Because at one time, I'm going to take some liberties here, he was an Ammonite. There was just nothing in him that was good. Nothing that looked redeemable. Nothing that God could use. See how God doesn't ask me who can be saved and not saved? You see that? It's a good thing too. It's a good thing. Because there was a day I was kind of sitting in that same place. And though I deserved to be saved, at least I thought I did. I was no different. But God saved that man. And... He allowed the power of God to work in his life and it transformed him. It totally transformed his life. And so as we respond to this passage and we go, ooh, that's just not right. That's true. But God has a plan. God has a plan for everyone. And it says he desires that none perish, but all of us come to repentance. And you've heard already this morning that as we go into this new year, one of our major focuses is going to be on prayer. It's going to be on us showing our dependence as we beg God to send us into the harvest. Right, Jesus was very clear. The fields are right, they're ready, they're ready to be harvested. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he send out workers. And as, as we do this, these are the kind of things that we have to keep in mind. God doesn't ask us who can be saved and not saved. He does ask us that as we go, make disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. We have to beg God for these people as somebody probably begged God for us. There's no one that's irredeemable. And John, I have to put you on the spot. One of the things that John loves to pray, he, he says, we're going to pray for the hard things. 
You know, we're not gonna we're not gonna pray for um, God. Don't don't let me not slip on the step on the way out. Oh no, we're gonna pray for that person that looks like there's so much around them that they'll never see Christ. Because when they do see Christ, when we, when the word says in in Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. When that person comes to Christ, your faith is gonna just. We're going to pray for those big things. And so as we go forward into the new year, just an encouragement, as we set these environments up to pray and to, to start making lists in our community groups and to do these things where we're begging God for the souls of our neighbors, our friends, those people that we are mixing with, let's take that seriously. Because there's a lot of Ammonites, a lot of Moabites, and a lot of Windsorites mixing around here that need Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, I, I thank you for your word, Lord, and, and I would pray that you would protect your word. And Lord, if there are any places that we stretched things this morning, God, I just I would pray that your that your hand would would cover that. But God, it is, it is our desire as a church that you would thrust us into the fields, into the harvest. God, knowing that you have a plan for everyone, regardless of what it looks like from birth to whatever, regardless of what they look like today, God, we know it's your desire that they repent and come to you. God, would you impress upon our hearts a true love, a true dependence on you that would drive us to beg for people's souls. It wouldn't just be talk, God. It would not just be a, a nice, pious thing to say, but, but God, it really is the makeup of us that it is our desire to see your kingdom grow and people coming into your kingdom to glorify you. So God, with us, we just pray that you have your way with us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.